look not just at the numbers, but look at the story behind the numbers. Are you ready for the best real estate investing advice ever? Join Joe Fairless and today's successful real estate professional as they share it with you. Let's go. A quick word from our sponsor, 24 Sound. 24 Sound is technically an audio production company, but they're way more than that. They're there to help you grow your business from audiobooks to podcasts and everything in between. They're flawless as sound engineers and they're strategic as business partners. Visit them at 24sound.com. You can also email them at hello at 24sound.com. And of course, as a best ever listener, you'll get a best ever discount. Mention best ever, and you'll get a 20% discount on your first product. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless, and I'm here with today's guest, Frank Gallinelli. Hi, Frank. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me on today. Great to have you. And Frank is joining us from New York City. He has been involved in real estate since the early 1970s. He is the author of several books on real estate investing, the earliest of which is called What Every Real Estate Investor Needs to Know About Cash Flow. And it's remained the top selling real estate book on Amazon, one of the top selling books on Amazon since 2004. He's an adjunct assistant professor of real estate finance at Columbia University. He's been doing that for over 11 years, and he's the founder of Real Data, a software company that helps real estate investors identify the profit potential of real estate investments. So long story short, you've got a lot of experience, and I'm excited to talk to you, and you're actively practicing it and sharing it. So with that being said, can you tell the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure, Joe. I started off, as you said, in the early 70s, probably like most people who get involved in real estate. I was in, in residential sales. From that segued into, into commercial and into sales management. And then around 1980, uh, while I was looking at a particular property that uh, a partner and I were interested in purchasing, uh, I got kind of... Uh, taken up by a new gadget that became available, something called a personal computer. I'm not sure that was the best decision I ever made because I got my focus on that and, and, and took my focus off for, for a while on investing in property. But we founded a company called Real Data back then, which I still own and operate. And the purpose of that company has been to produce financial analysis models so that other investors would be able to take a look at the income stream, the potential uh, future cash flows, sale proceeds, partnership considerations, and so on from income property uh, and make intelligent decisions. That software company kind of got me involved in in doing some writing, some uh, educational content, and that caught the attention of, of both a, a publisher in New York who talked me into writing a book. I, of course, I wasn't uh, sufficiently savvy about publishing at that point. I gave the guy a hard time. I didn't realize that if I had called them and asked if they'd like to publish a book that I wrote, that they wouldn't have been able to stop laughing long enough to hang up the phone. But <laughs> since they called me, everything worked out fine. And uh, from that, uh, someone at Columbia happened to to notice what I was doing and, and invited me to come come teach. And I've been I've been doing that gig for the last ten years. So I've been I've been keeping pretty busy. 
how did you come up with the information and the knowledge to create templates or and software programs that help an, analyze properties? Because there's, as, as you know, because you created it, there's a lot that goes into it and there's a lot of different types of styles that people run numbers and how to um, factor in different expenses and projections. What was your baseline foundation for coming up with that? Well, I was, I was uncommonly fortunate, actually. As I said, back when I was in the, uh, uh, working in the, in, in the brokerage business, I worked for one of the founders of the CCAM program, the commercial program uh, that specializes in income property analysis for commercial realtors. So I learned, essentially, if you will, at his knee, uh, how to analyze properties the way the most uh, you know, sophisticated commercial brokers were doing. That was kind of in the early, early stages of computerization, we actually had a computer department, an entire, you know, large room full of devices that had perhaps one sixteenth the power of my cell phone now. But uh, the uh, the broker again that I was working for was was very big into technology as well. So kind of the dots got connected after a while. And when I was off on my own doing this sort of thing, I had the background from learning how to analyze properties uh, the way the CCIMs did and the interest in the technology and basically everything dovetailed together. What's one thing in the software that you have included? And I know there's a lot of different analysis, so I'll let you just pick and choose which, whichever one you want to reference that would be surprising to an investor or if not surprising, then what's commonly not factored in or not factored to the degree that you're factoring it? Well, the, uh, the software is very much focused on the income stream from a property. And that I think is probably what I would uh, zero in on, on the one issue that at least novice investors have a difficulty internalizing as the, as the, the key element. Um, an experienced investor will tell you right off the bat that what they're interested in is, is tracking and projecting the future income stream, the, the future sale proceeds, the, the future tax implications. But the, the novice investor sometimes doesn't really pick up on that and understand that, uh, hasn't internalized it. Um, uh, quite as quite as well as the as the experienced investor. And what do you find novice investors being more focused on in those cases? Yeah, well, they they uh, make what I think is a very common mistake, and I find this virtually everywhere. Uh, even with even with my grad students when they come in, and a lot of these grad students have financial background, but they don't they don't really recognize that what you're buying when you're buying an income property is not the bricks and the boards and the you know the the toilet fixtures and and whatnot, but what you're buying is the future income stream from that property, and that the property's value is very much connected to that income stream. They think of, of real estate because most of us, our first association with real estate is in regard to housing. Uh, you know, we may have bought or sold a house, lived in a house, whatever. But we think of real estate as being an asset that is, that is essentially market-driven, that comparable sales will drive the value of a piece of, income, uh, of, a piece of property. And that's not really true of income property. Income property, income property, the value is driven by its ability to produce income. So it's not a rising tide lifts all boats kind of phenomenon the way you see in houses, but it's really driven to the return on investment uh, scenario. Based on your experience in real estate, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? 
Well, I think I would start with what I was, was just saying, which is to understand and truly internalize that it's the income stream that you're that you're talking about. And then I'm, I'm going to add on to that perhaps some actionable advice that derives from that. And that actionable advice would be, well, if the income stream is what drives value, then what should you do as an investor? Well, you should look for opportunities to buy property where you can enhance the income stream. Because if and when you do that, what you're going to be really doing is creating value or creating wealth. Now, there, there are a number of ways that the investor might go about doing that. The, I think probably the most obvious is, is to buy smart, to look for a property where the, where the value of, of the property is based on the current income stream, but the property is essentially under-rented so that you can acquire that property and bring it up to market. And this is not this is not theory. I, I I've actually done this myself in the past. I I can recall a property I bought once uh, quite some time ago that I recognized was substantially uh, under rented. Was able to double the rents and 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 sell it for for double its original purchase price within just a couple of years. But then you can go beyond that. What I think is a fairly obvious way of trying to enhance the the income stream by simply bringing it up to market. And looking at it and say, well, you know, perhaps I'm buying it at a price that's fair for uh, the market that it's in and how it addresses that market. But maybe the owner hasn't really uh, kept up with that market in the sense of recognizing that this property perhaps can be upscaled. If the market will tolerate upscaling, improving it from, you know, a class B property to a class A property, then you have the opportunity not just to increase the revenue, but also to get some some other salutary benefits from having done that upscaling. Because when you do so, you have also the opportunity perhaps to get lower vacancy. The property is now more desirable. Uh, you may be able to cut down on your operating expenses because of the fact that you've, that you've improved the property and now have fewer things that you're going to need in the short term at least, uh, repairs and maintenance. You may even be able to reduce your property management costs to some extent because the property now has become... Um, uh, more desirable. So, when you do this kind of upscaling and you and you enhance the the revenue stream, you probably not only will get payback on your investment to enhance the property or improve the property, payback through improved cash flow, so that you're you recover your costs within a couple of years, but you also increase the value both through the increase in the top line, the revenue, and in the improvement in the below the top line items, such as operating expenses. So you have a kind of a three-dimensional opportunity to create value, create wealth, and improve cash flow by understanding that what really is going on here is the income stream, that this property is not just going to increase in value because it happens to sit there over time and, you know, everything always goes up kind of attitude. That's not really what happens with, with income property. I love that approach, and it really simplifies the process um, and makes it very straightforward. Um, you know, I, I always think of of buying, it's not necessarily a property, but I'm buying a, a business. And when I think about buying a business versus it being a real estate property, then that immediately shifts my focus from, as you mentioned, you know, the, the toilets and the walls to the income and how the income potential and the future income potential for the property. 
That's absolutely correct. You know, an example that I give my my students is two virtually identical buildings that are right next to each other. They, they physically, in every way, they're identical. But the one thing that's different about them is their lease structures. One's at market rents. One's got old leases that are going to go a long time into the future, locked in at at below market rents. Well, the, the properties are physically identical, but they um, uh, their income streams are different, and therefore their value to an investor. Is different, and you know, Joe. An interesting thing that invariably happens when I start, you know, waxing poetic, if you will, on the virtues of the income stream, is that you know people will always kind of roll their eyes and say to me, "Hey, look, yeah, you really expect me to believe that the location doesn't have anything to do with the value of a property, or that the physical condition, or the or the general aesthetic appeal?" I mean, come on, give me a break. Everybody knows that location matters. And I say to them, "Well, you know, you're not entirely wrong." But you got to get keep your focus on that income stream notion. So would you be more interested as a tenant in renting a property that's in the central business district or a property that's sitting on top of a nuclear waste dump? Uh, would you be more interested in renting a property that is a for a professional office that is a beautiful restored Victorian, or perhaps would you rather have a cement block bunker that looks like a bomb shelter? What I'm really trying to tell them is, yeah, location matters. It matters to the extent that it impacts your potential income stream. But ultimately, it's the income stream that is your, quite literally, bottom line. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Oh, lightning strikes twice. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> A quick word from our best ever sponsor. Best ever listeners, if you want to grow your business, you need an audio product. Contact 24sound at 24sound.com for a free consultation. And remember, you'll get 20% off your first product just by mentioning best ever. Best ever book you've read. I'm going to give you two, I think. And they're not business books because if you spend all your time in business, you like to read something else. And is, is this going to be your theme? Two answers. That's why the lightning strikes thrice. That yes, answers exactly. every question. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm going to give you two by David McCulloch. Uh, the Path Between the Seas, which is about the creation of the Panama Canal. And the Great Bridge, which is about the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. And so anytime you think you're having a hard time getting something accomplished, go read those two books. And you'll feel a lot better by whatever's troubling you. Yeah, and it reminds me of whenever uh, Carnegie was trying to build his bridge. I think it was somewhere in Mississippi or something. And he didn't know what the, what type of material he should use. And he was going bankrupt and creditors were calling him. And then he uh, ended up coming across steel and uh, ended up making the very first bridge out of steel. And he still didn't have everybody sold on the idea because it was a brand new concept. So at the time it was good luck or a show of, of confidence. If you had in, I believe an elephant, I'm, I might be making this up, but I believe an elephant walk across the bridge um, to show <laughs> that it was really sturdy. And not only did he have an elephant walk across the bridge, but he had an entire parade go over the bridge. And yeah, it, it was an incredible experience. Yeah, I think Roebling did the same kind of thing with the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, I'm not sure if it was an elephant or not, but they, they did any number of, of things to try to reassure people. They must put trains across it to reassure people that, yes, this was not going to go falling into the East River. Best ever listeners, I know you like audio, so you can go to freebesteverbook.com and get a free audio version of books like that. All right, Frank, best ever personal growth experience and what you learned from it. Well, it was kind of surprising, but teaching 
uh, my grad uh, students at Columbia. And, you know, you start something like that and you you obviously or at least I obviously begin with the idea. Well, of course, I know everything and you know nothing and we'll take it from there. But what I found in reality is that every year I learn something from my grad students. Uh, every year they put a new perspective on how to look at properties or how to look at investments or how to look at a deal. And uh, I find that really, really very empowering, if you will, that uh, that I can I can learn something. And they almost rely now on learning something from the experiences that they bring to our dialogue. At the beginning of the class with the new group of students, do you tell them that, okay, expectations are really high. I've learned something from every group of students before you. So now you have to teach me something. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I'll try that next time. Thanks for the idea. <laughs> What's something specifically you've learned from a group of students? Um, I think one of the mo- one of the more interesting things was to was to look at not just the the numbers, but to look behind the numbers. Uh, when I gave a case study one time some years ago, now I now I take full credit for this idea, but it really came from my students. <laughs> that uh, uh, I had a, a a shopping center with some kind of some dicey business prospects from the commercial tenants. I think one of the tenants was a bookstore at the time. Yeah, you know, we got to go back a few years before. Amazon was really the, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in the room. And someone mentioned to me, you know, maybe the leases notwithstanding and the projections about future cash flows notwithstanding, maybe that that uh, income stream there is a little bit more suspect because perhaps the business is suspect, the business that underlies it. And kind of out of that dialogue, uh, I introduced an entirely I think expanded approach in my class about looking at income properties saying, look, not just at the numbers, but look at the story behind the numbers uh, to see if that story really makes sense to you. Best ever success habit you practice? I think I would have to say clarity or at least trying to achieve clarity. And by that, I mean, you know, trying to be always when in any kind of business, not not even just business transaction, any kind of uh, endeavor to be totally unambiguous. I've seen more deals come unraveled because of lack of clarity, whether you're trying to negotiate a real estate deal or trying to apply for financing or trying to give somebody directions to your house. If you're not absolutely perfectly clear as to what it is that you're trying to convey, at the very least, you're not going to be effective in your objective, or you may actually just undo the deal entirely. Uh, I've seen, for example, where uh, buyers of a property and trying to explain to the seller why they think the numbers don't work here, they'll use non-standard uh, vocabulary or non-standard terminology so that the, that the person on the other side of this really doesn't know what this buyer is talking about. The another, another part of that clarity is not only making sure that what you're conveying to another person is totally unambiguous, but making sure that the same logic applies to what's going on inside your own head. Are you clear about what it is that your objective is in making this deal? Are you clear about what kind of information it is that you are in fact trying to convey? So I think clarity is an essential part to doing successful business. Best ever deal you've done? Oh, that one's that one's clear. You only get one strike on this one. Uh, back some years ago, we acquired a, a building because it was involved, uh, we're using as part of a, a family business, a retail, a retail business. We imbi- uh, acquired a building that it, 
ended up being a triple net lease property. Now, back when I was 30 some odd years old, I had absolutely no clue at all as the potential advantage of having a triple net lease property as a key part of my portfolio at the point in my life when I was gliding gracefully into retirement. But now that I am doing that glide, I see that a triple net lease property can be a very valuable retirement asset, uh, one where you have relatively little exposure to the vicissitudes of increasing taxes or expenses, uh, and where you have relatively low impact management responsibilities. So acquiring a triple net lease property as a younger person, thinking about that as a as a retirement asset, uh, I think is a in in retrospect, I didn't know it at the time, but turned out to be a very good decision. Best ever quote. In business, I think I would take Ronald Reagan and say, trust but verify. I think it captures a, a valuable balance between trust and skepticism. It's, I think it's always good to assume that you're being dealt with on the up and up fair and square. But I will tell you from, from experience, not only my own personal experience, but obviously we've dealt with thousands of investors uh, over the 30 plus years that we've uh, been offering them uh, analysis software. Um, very, sometimes you encounter people who, who I think almost inhabit a parallel universe <laughs> where they're telling you, and they're, they're, not, they're not lying to you, but they're telling you what reality ought to be in a perfect world, not what it actually is. So these are the rents. Well, they're not really the rents. These are the rents that should be, but I'm such a nice guy, I don't charge that much, whatever the story is. But they, they, you know, they, they actually convey this information as if it is reality, and it's not quite reality. So I think you want to take the, uh, the, the point of view that, yes, you will trust people, but you want to have, you want to have the information that you're being given uh, verified so that, that you can uh, verify it independently in some way. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? <laughs> well, I've, I've made more than my share, but I think uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to uh, try to, to gracefully sidestep the question and introduce instead the the question of the uh, an answer from the point of view of the investors that we deal with through our software companies and, and some of the investors that I deal with by uh, being online on, so, on several forums, because I, f I find some really key errors are made very commonly by beginning investors. The first of these, I'm going to give you the two, the two strike answer again. Sorry about that, Joe. <laughs> the first of these is buying an income property for reasons other than its ability to produce income. I love this property. I love this building. It's a great looking building. I've always wanted to own that. All nice things, all nice motives, but you really have to look at the building for its ability to produce income. Kind of as the uh, corollary to that, is then if you really twist the person's arm and say, okay, okay, I'm going to look at the income. Really and truly, I really will. They tend to look at it through rose-colored glasses, especially if it's something that they wanted to buy for emotional reasons rather than totally business reasons. And so they look at the broker's or the owner's statement of income and expenses, and they're not just going to fail to, to verify the numbers, but they're not even going to notice that perhaps some of these numbers don't really make sense, or that perhaps there are things that are, have been left unmentioned. You know, like like you, I'm in the Northeast. If someone were to show me an income and expense statement on a property uh, that didn't have anything about snow removal, I might wonder, you know, well, what exactly what exactly happens to that snow? Are, aren't you paying anybody to clear the parking lot? 
It just uh, melts. Yeah, of course. If you wait long <laughs> enough, it probably will. But, after, after it ices over and somebody slides and falls and then sues you. you know, there'll be no accommodation or no consideration of, of a vacancy allowance. I mean, uh, did you never have an empty unit in this building? Uh, did you never have to cut the grass? Did you never have to vacuum the hallways? When you look at an income and expense statement from an owner, don't simply take it as presented. Even if the numbers that you're given look reasonable, what about the numbers that might be missing entirely? Management is another expense, by the way, that many novice investors don't take into consideration because they say, well, you know, I'm going to manage the property myself. I say, fine. And your time has no value whatsoever, right? Well, yes, it does. And if you're going to use your time to manage a property, then you should put in a fair value for your time as a legitimate operating expense because the day may come when you don't have time to do it and you will have to turn it over to somebody else. What's the best ever place to reach you? Probably at our website, which is www.realdata.com. You can send us a, uh, not only call it a support ticket, but we read it just like it's email. Uh, we learned years ago, you don't put an email address on a website unless you want to have all kinds of spam mail. So we use that as a method of contacting us. But I'm always happy to hear from uh, your best ever listeners, my book readers, our software customers, and I'm happy to answer questions whenever I can. Well, thank you so much for sharing your advice and your insight on the show. And I know that, you know, a lot of the best ever listeners got a lot out of this. I, I love how your advice is applicable to any type of real estate investing because it's just about the income stream and the income potential for the property in the future. So thanks so much for sharing your advice and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Joe. It was, it was a pleasure to be with you today. Hey, you, best ever listener, do you want more? Then head to JoeFairless.com, where there are tons of free videos, templates, and content to help you get deals done. And if you want Joe to personally help you reach your goals, then go to the Work With Joe tab on JoeFairless.com and apply to, well, Work With Joe. 